Uh, my name is Bates Gill. I'm a visiting professor at the United States Studies Center here at the University of Sydney, uh, also a professor of Asia-Pacific Strategic Studies at Australian National University. And it is a great pleasure and honor to be able to welcome tonight uh, to the University of Sydney uh, three of uh, America's great thought leaders on issues in relation to philanthropy, as well as leaders uh, of the philanthropic community here in Australia to discuss what we think is a very timely uh, and in incredibly important issue in today's world and looking ahead. And that has to do with philanthropy, uh, the responsibility of philanthropy, and the direction which philanthropy will be taking us uh, in the years ahead across the 21st century. Why? Why are we uh, taking uh, the responsibility to try and bring these issues forward here in Australia? Well, as you may know, uh, the United States Studies Center here at the University of Sydney has as its leading mandate, um, the effort to raise awareness and understanding about the United States in Australia as well as around the world. And it struck us uh, some years ago that the question of philanthropy and its future uh, is very much one that is at the heart of the American experience. Uh, it is a part of the American experience and culture, uh, which has been really very much a part of the fabric uh, of American society uh, for well more than a century. And it is a culture and part of the American fabric which I think we can say is globally unique. That's not to say that everything that the United States does with regard to philanthropy is right for the rest of the world, uh, but rather there is a wealth of experience, uh, both good and bad, uh, that that experience can, can deliver as other countries around the world are thinking through their own questions about philanthropy. Um, I think it might be fair to say that at its best, uh, philanthropy, I think, in America uh, is an embodiment of the American spirit at its best, uh, charitable, innovative, and looking for ways to draw synergies from the private sector and free markets, the public sector, and the social sphere in order to bring about better outcomes for all. So it was in that spirit that we uh, were very pleased uh, to join with a number of partners here in Australia in order to bring our friends from the United States over and have this conversation. I would like to especially acknowledge and thank a member of our board at the United States Studies Center, as well as a member of the Board of Philanthropy Australia, Joe Skrinsky, and his family foundation for being especially keen to help us deliver uh, on these issues today and across this week. We're also very, very pleased and fortunate to have been able to partner with Philanthropy Australia, which is Australia's leading organization uh, in looking at questions of philanthropy and its future. Um, this is the beginning of a great collaboration, I think, and we're very pleased to have with us tonight, and you'll be hearing from its CEO, uh, Sarah Davies. Uh, her colleague, uh, Christian Siebert, has also been a great contributor to the work that we're undertaking here tonight and across the week and going forward. Um, we've also been pleased to work with the Foundation Center of New York. Uh, we'll hear from their president, Brad Smith, tonight, as well as the director of research for special projects, Dr. Seema Shaw, uh, who together have been the principal authors of the report. We'll be launching tonight U.S. Foundation funding for Australia. So I want to just underscore our appreciation uh, to be able to work with these fine organizations 
Philanthropy Australia, and the Foundation Center in bringing together our discussions for tonight. Just a couple of uh, adverts, if you don't mind. Um, we have some very, very uh, exciting uh, United States Studies Center events coming up. We're partnering with the Sydney Writers Festival for two events. One is called America, Writers Talk Politics, which features David Smith on the panel. That's one of our faculty members at the US Studies Center, as well as an evening with Hanya Yanagihara, who will talk about her book, A Little Life. Now, um, this latter event is fully booked, but we do have a wait list. Uh, and if you're interested, please do come to our website for more details, ussc.edu.au. And I have one other uh, event to note. On April 21st, again in partnership with Sydney Ideas, who we're partnering with tonight, uh, we'll present The Center Cannot Hold, Rethinking the 1960s in America and Beyond. We'll have two scholars, American Studies scholars, uh, based in Paris, Andrew Diamond and uh, Carolyn Roland Diamond who are uh, world-renowned specialists on American history and uh, uh, contemporary movements in America, as well as our own faculty from the US Studies Center, Professor Thomas Adams and Professor Rebecca Sheehan. That will be at 6 PM on Thursday, the 21st of April. Again, our thanks to Philanthropy Australia, the Foundation Center, and to Sydney Ideas for the opportunity to work with you all tonight. Now it's my great pleasure to be able to introduce to you our keynote speaker for the evening, and that's Stephen Hines. Stephen Hines is the president of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, uh, one of America's leading foundations. Uh, he may be able to tell you a little bit more in detail about that uh, foundation, but obviously uh, a foundation which uh, has built from, uh, as he would put it, uh, America's leading philanthropic family, the Rockefellers. Stephen's been in this role since the early 2000s and came to it uh, himself uh, as a leader from the nonprofit sector who was seeking grants from the likes of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and others, and who has grown remarkably in this role uh, as CEO of one of America's finest foundations, working closely with his board uh, to bring about the types of uh, change, social change, uh, and, and, and progressivism that he and his foundation represent. Um, prior to working at the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, he, as I said, led think tanks in the United States as well as in Europe, and also served as a very senior official within the Connecticut government for a number of years as well. So it brings a very unique perspective in understanding uh, approaches to philanthropy from the public sector, uh, from the nonprofit sector, and also from the grant-making sector itself. We've asked Stephen uh, tonight to talk about the responsibility of philanthropy. And I know you're going to be in for a real treat here uh, as Stephen talks about that very issue and looks ahead into the 21st century and the very critical role he foresees for philanthropy going forward. So please welcome Stephen Heinz. Well, Bates, thank you very much for that very generous introduction. I'm really just thrilled to be here in Australia. It's kind of a little modest about uh, admitting that it's my first time in Australia, but I can assure you that having only been here a little while, it won't be my last. This is a really wonderful country, and already we've met some extraordinary leaders in philanthropy and in business, 
and in academia, um, and it is just a great, great pleasure to be here. So thanks for coming out tonight and being part of this conversation. Um, I want to thank the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney and Philanthropy Australia for co-hosting uh, this event and for co-hosting our visit together this week. We are doing a nonstop series of conversations with people here in Sydney and then on to Melbourne uh, over the next couple of days. I'm also very happy to be with dear friends and colleagues from the U.S. Foundation sector, Brad Smith and Seema Shah. And you will hear from them a bit later tonight, I think, some very interesting findings of a report that they're just issuing this evening. So I, I'm really very pleased to have the opportunity to share with you some thoughts about the responsibility of philanthropy uh, for our times. Um, and I I'm, I'm, think it's great that we're doing this in Australia where private philanthropy is growing at such an impressive rate and where there is such a serious conversation underway about how to do both more philanthropy and better philanthropy. And that's the challenge that all of us face in philanthropy. How can we do it better? How can we have deeper impact? How can we live up to the responsibility of philanthropy? So I'm going to um, kind of try to do this a little bit at the 50,000-foot level. And then I hope in the conversation that we're going to have afterwards, if you're interested in bringing it closer down to earth, we will do that as well. I'm going to try to construct a kind of a work in progress, a kind of general theory for philanthropy in the 21st century. Human civilization is facing some unprecedented challenges in the decades ahead. And philanthropy and the nonprofit organizations we support have both an essential and a unique role to play in helping human civilization to meet these very, very large challenges. And I look forward to your comments about this, your own thoughts about this general theory of philanthropy a bit later on. So I want to start with some thoughts about the context for our work in philanthropy, the kind of critical conditions that are shaping the environment for philanthropic activity, from the persistent threat of terrorism to pro protracted military conflict, from growing disparities between the rich and the poor, and from the very severe dangers of climate change, these early decades of the 21st century have been a period of constant disequilibrium. And increasingly, it seems that our ability to address these challenges and many others is hampered by profound anachronism in the core political and economic systems that have shaped the features of civilization and produced enormous progress for over 300 years. These core 17th and 18th century concepts are now showing what I think of as signs of obsolescence in the face of 21st century realities. So first is the erosion of the modern nation-state system. 
which in Western societies came into place with the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, and elsewhere around the globe actually has even older roots. Today, globalization and a variety of transnational threats, transnational problems, are proving the nation-state system to be inadequate. We are living in a time of unprecedented global interdependence. 7.4 billion human beings inhabit Earth, along with some 2 million other known species. We share one planetary ecosystem, one climate, and increasingly one polity. Given revolutionary advances in technology, analysts now use the term hyperconnectivity to describe the extraordinary breadth and depth of social relations in the 21st century. Whatever the term we might use, the truth is that people all across the world are now experiencing these transnational threats, obviously in unique ways given their local circumstances, but we're all experiencing them together. We can't avoid it. Climate change, currency wars, pandemic disease, terrorism, simply are not confined by national borders. People, leaders, and institutions everywhere are gonna to have to think of new ways of working together in ways that cut across traditional borders of nation states or sectors or communities or cultural groups to help work on these problems collectively. Polylateral mechanisms that mobilize the resources and capacities of government, the private sector, and civil society or the nonprofit sector are going to become, I think, increasingly important in this interdependent world. Nation-states are going to continue to be vitally important, of course, clearly necessary, but simply not sufficient. The second systemic challenge is that enlightenment concepts of representative democratic government are also showing signs of severe stress. This is fueled by economic and political inequality, which reduces faith in democratic processes and the institutions of government. The 20th century produced a kind of democracy paradox with the fall of the communist regimes in Eastern Europe and the demise of the Soviet Union, more citizens on this planet are today living in nominally democratic societies than ever before. But at the same time, the quality of democracy in many places is in decline. Economic downturns, the threats of social unrest have led to countries like Russia, Egypt, India, Turkey, Hungary, Poland, and others to turn toward neo-authoritarian styles of governance and to crack down on civil society and dissent. But even older, more established democracies are showing signs of political dysfunction and bureaucratic inertia. The US is, in my view, experiencing a particularly worrying decline in the quality of our democratic political culture, as is painfully evident in the conduct of the current presidential campaign.
American politics today are characterized by hyperpartisanship, dysfunction, denial, dishonesty, and the pernicious influence of money. At the international level, political globalization hasn't kept pace with economic globalization. The institutions and processes of global decision-making, global problem-solving, are underdeveloped and insufficiently democratic in terms of inclusivity, equity, transparency, and accountability. So in light of all of these trends about the decline in the quality of democracy and the challenge of democracy in global governance, civil society, the nonprofit sector, is even more essential in safeguarding freedom, holding governments to account, and advancing reforms in our democratic processes and institutions for the conditions of the 21st century. The third systemic anachronism is the dominant model of free market capitalism, which relies extensively on the extraction and burning of fossil fuels. In the 250 years since the invention of the steam engine and the birth of the industrial age, carbon-fueled capitalism has brought enormous benefit to humankind. But we now know it has also come at a profound cost. Carbon emissions are producing rapid warming of the planet and the very real possibility of climate catastrophe before the end of this century. We are stubbornly following an economic model which I call consumption development, the pursuit of economic growth through the largely unrestrained exploitation of limited natural resources with inadequate regard for social and, economic, social and environmental impacts. The consequences of this model are now clear. We are depleting life essential resources, life sustaining resources like water. We are compromising our air and our arable land. We are warming the planet to dangerous levels and exacerbating disparities between the rich and the poor. This is consumption development. The concept of sustainable development, defined by the United Nations as, quote, development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs, must guide the invention of a new economic model of capitalism that promotes greater inclusion and equity, reduces poverty, and saves our planet from irreversible ecological damage. Now, there are some encouraging signs of progress in this regard. In September of last year at the United Nations Sustainable Development Summit, world leaders adopted the 2030 Agenda, setting out 17 very ambitious Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, to end poverty, reduce inequality and injustice, and mitigate climate change over the next 15 years. And the climate agreement forged in Paris in December is a significant, a very significant step in the effort to manage global warming. And these two processes, the SDGs and the Paris Agreement, are really good examples of the kind of polylateralism that I described earlier, because they are not just agreements among governments. 
They are agreements that involve private actors, business, nonprofits, philanthropies, citizens. And this is very, very exciting. But, you know, I think we have to be honest. Despite these important milestones, we still have a very, very long way to go. If we are going to successfully overcome these profound global challenges we're going to face in this century, we've got to jettison anachronistic assumptions of the past, reform obsolete organizational structures, and invent new institutions, new mechanisms, new systems, and a new global ethos that accurately reflect both current realities and future needs. So what does this mean for philanthropy in the 21st century? The urgent tasks before us, effectively managing global interdependence, revitalizing democracy, and creating a new economic model of genuinely sustainable development can only be accomplished through rapid and continuous innovation in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors and much broader and deeper cooperation among the three sectors. In fact, this is the only way we're going to accomplish these goals and solve these problems. So this leads me to suggest 10 interrelated imperatives for philanthropy in this century. Now, I want to stress that I offer these for the field of philanthropy as a whole and not for every individual philanthropic institution. And I'm sure many of them are quite obvious to the people in this room, but nonetheless, I think they're worth repeating. So first, I think it is useful to distinguish between traditional forms of charitable giving and strategic philanthropy. Charity responds to current needs with generosity and compassion, whether to help feed the hungry, respond to humanitarian disasters, or sustain the arts. All of these are essential and noble uses of private wealth for public benefit. Strategic philanthropy focuses on longer-term efforts to address the root causes of problems, work that requires investments of patient capital that may not produce measurable results for some time, perhaps not even for years. The challenges confronting humankind today require both charity and strategic philanthropy, and many foundations pursue some mix of the two. But as in business, it is the strategic long-term investments that often generate the greatest returns. The second imperative is that philanthropy must unite to become a global force for innovation. We must complement individual philanthropic activity of our individual institutions or in our personal giving with an increase in collaboration focused on the kinds of global challenges that I've described. And given the realities of global interdependence, foundations whose mandate is local or regional can still contribute to solutions to the problems that now affect every community as part of these global trends. This is a real opportunity for us to unite as a global force for progress. And with the growth of philanthropy across the world, here in Australia, in China, in Mexico, in Africa, I think the opportunity for philanthropy to come together 
as a global force is very, very exciting. The third imperative, we need to redefine our relations with both the private sector and government and play a leadership role amongst the three sectors as this relationship continues to evolve. Each sector must contribute their unique abilities and resources to meeting these challenges that, that we face. How will we work together more effectively, business, the nonprofit sector, and government, even when at times we will find ourselves in contention with each other? Compared with the magnitude of the problems, and compared with the scale of both the public and private sectors, philanthropy has truly modest resources to contribute. Just looking at it from the U.S. perspective, in 2014, U.S. foundations made grants totaling some $54 billion. Now, that's not an insignificant sum of money, $54 billion, but if you compare it to the size of just the U.S. federal budget, which is something like $4 trillion U.S. dollars, or the U.S. economy, which is nearly $18 trillion, and then you think that American foundations are not only working in the U.S., but they're working around the world, the value of that $54 billion is very modest indeed. So I think of philanthropy like acupuncture. All we have at our disposal are these tiny little needles, and the question is, where can we insert these needles to trigger some larger systemic change? That's the art of philanthropy. So philanthropy that influences public policy or helps shape corporate behavior through research, through advocacy, through policy development, this can be high leverage use of these small resources that we've got because they're the two mega sectors where real change needs to take place. The fourth imperative is that we must be willing in philanthropy to take prudent risks. Philanthropy can experiment. We can test new ideas. We can support people that can't get support elsewhere. Our sector is able to take on challenges that the other two sectors simply can't or won't. We and our grantees can take on risks that are economically unacceptable to business and politically unacceptable to government. We need to manage risk effectively, and we have to be willing to fail. And we need to use the opportunity for serious reflection to study the reasons for why things have worked and to study the reasons why some of the experiments and some of the ideas do not, and to share that learning so that others can benefit from the experimentation and the risk-taking. Fifth, philanthropic institutions, in particular the larger ones, must strive to reflect the diversity of the societies they serve. This is especially true in highly diverse societies like the United States and Australia. Ensuring that we have diverse boards and staff enhances our legitimacy in the eyes of the public, and research clearly demonstrates that diverse organizations are more creative and make better decisions. Now, in the U.S., I'm sorry to report that the U.S. private sector is quite a bit ahead of philanthropy in this regard. Um, and this may be the same here in Australia as well. Six, 
We must use all of our assets, not just our grants budgets, but our investment portfolios, our intellectual resources, our convening authority, our leadership and reputation, and our independence in ways that advance our philanthropic missions. Using the full array of these resources, a kind of 360-degree assessment of the resources you've got, that you've got, using all of them is another way of leveraging impact. Seven, given the scale and the complexity of the challenges we face, it is imperative that we be relentlessly focused on impact. How do we know if the work we are supporting is actually producing progress? Measurable indicators of progress are desirable, of course. But I think it's wise to keep Einstein's warning in mind. Not everything important can be measured. Uh, not everything that can be measured is important. When quantitative measures are unavailable or inappropriate, we're not off the hook. We then are required to look for qualitative indicators of progress and to report on those openly and accurately. We have to, in this business of trying to measure impact, we have to avoid the pitfalls of exaggerated assertions of attribution or causality. We are not doing all this work ourselves. There are many who are contributing. And our grant didn't cause X, didn't cause Y, because other factors are at work. Honesty in this business of evaluating impact is absolutely essential. Eight. We must uphold the highest ethical standards in how we are governed and how we conduct our work. We serve the public welfare, and we have to keep that very much at the forefront of our thinking. And we must safeguard the highest opinion of the public to sustain our legitimacy and maintain our independence. We must take precautions to avoid the appearance or the reality of conflict of interest and we should scrupulously avoid any hint of self-dealing. Nine, we must adjust to and welcome greater scrutiny. As philanthropy continues to grow, more attention will be paid to what we are doing and how we are doing it. We must welcome this scrutiny, maximize our transparency, and demonstrate accountability. This poses some risks, and it will be uncomfortable for many philanthropists, especially at first. But it is essential, and it's also unavoidable. If we support organizations that are serving as watchdogs and they're pressing for public accountability in government, we too must be held accountable. If we advocate for greater transparency in corporate practice, we too must be transparent. Transparency will also help us safeguard our most valuable asset, which is our independence. And Brad and Seema are going to tell you more about the question of transparency in the new report that is being issued here in just a few minutes. So finally, the last of these imperatives, we have to be bold in our ambitions and modest and humble in our approach. Philanthropy is not going to solve humankind's great 21st century challenges. But we do have an essential role to play, and we must work with partners in the public, 
private and nonprofit sectors with creativity, courage, compassion, sincerity, and humility. During the 1990s, as, as Bates indicated, I had the opportunity to live and work in Eastern Europe. And I worked closely with Václav Havel, the dissident Czech playwright who led his country to freedom in the Velvet Revolution. In a 1998 essay, Havel wrote, quote, it's fascinating to me how preoccupied people are today with catastrophic prognoses, how books containing evidence of impending crises become bestsellers, but how very little account we take of these threats in our everyday activities. Havel asked, what could change the direction of today's civilization? Well, it is my hope that philanthropy will become a powerful force for the kind of civilizational change that Havel had in mind. Philanthropy can engender a deeper understanding of today's unprecedented challenges in the public consciousness and help citizens embrace the need for significant change in our political and economic systems. Philanthropy can innovate and experiment with new ideas and honestly share the lessons we learn along the way. Philanthropy can help forge a new global compact in which the public, private, and nonprofit sectors work more effectively together with the understanding that the health and well-being of any given society is inextricably linked with the health and welfare of all societies and the vitality of Earth's ecosystem. We can succeed. We can beat these big challenges. But only if we use all of our ingenuity, all of our powers of persuasion, all of our stubborn determination, the best traditions of charity, and the best practices of strategic philanthropy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, Stephen. That's an excellent introduction to our discussions this evening. Uh, I think both remarkable in its scope, uh, in its ambition to think forward, and I think inspiring to all of us to understand the role that the society, the social sector, can and must play uh, in delivering, in meeting the challenges we all face going forward. Um, it really speaks very truthfully for all of us to be thinking hard not to simply be relying uh, on the powers of the market or uh, the powers of the public sector and government as defaults, but rather to see within our own selves as private citizens, as part of the social sector, the power we have and can bring to address these challenges. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. We're going to look forward to hearing more from you in just a few minutes when we have our panel discussion. Uh, but first, we're very, very pleased to welcome uh, to the podium uh, two individuals who will be telling us more about the report which is being launched today, uh, which was done in collaboration uh, amongst the U.S. Studies Center, Philanthropy Australia, and the Foundation Center, which is looking at the question of U.S. foundation funding in Australia. And to speak to us tonight uh, will be uh, Brad Smith, who's the president of the Foundation Center. Uh, Brad has led the Foundation Center in New York since 2008. The Foundation Center in New York is the leading source of information about philanthropy 
worldwide. He can tell you more about the remarkable uh, analytical capacity that this organization has developed over the years to help us understand this sector. Brad comes to this role having worked within the civil society and philanthropic sector nearly all of his career, uh, including as a CEO of the Oak Foundation in Geneva, as the vice president of the Ford Foundation, focusing on uh, social justice and peace-related issues, uh, as well as its representative in Brazil. In addition, we'll be hearing from Dr. Asima Shah, who is the principal author of the report we're releasing tonight. Dr. Shah is the Foundation Center's Director for Research on Special Projects and has come to this role at the Foundation Center from an extensive career in the education sector in the United States. Um, so we have two individuals who spend 24-7, uh, really, uh, thinking about the role of American philanthropy in the United States and around the world, and who've put an enormous amount of time into releasing the report that we have available today. Uh, we do have uh, at the desk, as you came in, uh, a short synopsis available of the key points of the report. Uh, we're disseminating it entirely on an electronic basis. So if you're interested in the full report, please do go to the website of the Foundation Center in New York, uh, or to the website of the United States Studies Center here at the University of Sydney, or to the website of Philanthropy Australia. So please welcome to the podium then Brad Smith and Seema Shah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bates. Um, I'm just going to say a few words about the Foundation Center and then invite my colleague Seema Shah to talk about the research we did on U.S. foundation funding uh, in and for Australia. Um, the origin of the Foundation Center occurred somewhere between Westphalia and the 21st century. All right. Uh, the Foundation Center um, is uh, our mission is to strengthen the social sector by advancing knowledge about philanthropy in the US and around the world. Um, we maintain a very large, comprehensive database on US and increasingly global grant makers and their grants. Um, the sector is quite large in the US. It consists of over 87,000 uh, private independent foundations with assets collectively of $800 billion. And as Stephen mentioned to you, annual spending for their charitable purpose of uh, about $55 billion. Um, we also provide uh, research and training and education programs for nonprofits, for foundations, basically making all this information available not only for people who are looking for support from foundations, but also for foundations and those who advise them to be able to benchmark their own work. Um, the history actually starts at a very dark period um, in America, which was McCarthyism. Uh, in 1952 and 1955, there were two sets of congressional hearings to investigate American foundations for alleged support of un-American activities. This is a, a picture of Senator Joe McCarthy, quite famous. And this is an actual question that was asked the philanthropic leaders in 1952, and that is, do you know any foundations which have deliberately tended to foster communism or to weaken what we like to call Americanism? And when I hear foundation leaders today talking about scrutiny, I, it's, it's really interesting to think what it must have been like for those foundation leaders during McCarthyism to be called to Washington, D.C. and ask these kinds of questions publicly. 
Um, it was in 1956 that the Foundation Center was created um, as a response to those hearings. Uh, a group of foundation leaders met in New York City, and they decided to create a public information service as essentially the best defense about, for suspicion and innuendo about the activities of foundations. This is a picture of the first CEO, um, Emerson Andrews, of the Foundation Center. He was working for something called the Russell Sage Foundation at the time, and he was, went over to create this new center. And one of his chartered purposes was to promote the development of sound standards for reporting. This is actually from the first Foundation Center annual report in 1956. Um, the, one of the people that testified in those hearings was a gentleman named Russell Leffingwell. He was a Republican banker from J.P. Morgan. He was the chair of the Carnegie Foundation board. And in those hearings uh, before Senator Joe McCarthy, he had a very famous quote which was used at the creation of the Foundation Center, which is, we think that the foundation should have glass pockets. And what he meant by that is that the public should be able to see what's inside the pockets of foundations so there's no secrets, no suspicion. Um, the Foundation Center started out in 1960 publishing print directories of American foundations. The first one was, again, in 1960. At that time, there were 4,000 foundations in the United States. And this big new foundation that everyone was concerned about because it was so much bigger than all the others, it was not the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It was actually the Ford Foundation. Uh, today, it would be the Gates Foundation. And every year since then, the Foundation Center had published print directories of American foundations. Um, and then in 1999, those became online searchable databases. Uh, what was important about these going online is it actually created a business model for the maintenance of all this data. The sector was growing so fast that the leaders of the Foundation Center perceived that in order to responsibly collect and clean data on such a large sector, all of its grants, all of its grantees, required a steady stream of income, that foundation grants would not be sufficient or stable enough to do that. So making this an online subscription database actually produce an income stream which is sufficient to fund all the collection and cleaning of this geometrically expanding uh, sector around the world. Um, this same database is also made available for free public use in many locations around the country and around the world for organizations that can't afford to pay for it. But organizations that can't afford to pay for it, like Harvard University, um, do uh, subscribe to it. And sometimes people say, well, don't you feel guilty um, collecting information on nonprofit activity and, and charging fees for it? And my stock response is I sleep well at night knowing that Harvard University is paying to, to subscribe to this database. Um, I'm going to invite Seema here uh, to tell you uh, about a study that was based on this data collected by the Foundation Center. And it's really only possible uh, by having this kind of transparency um, that can be essentially can answer the question, what is philanthropy doing in Australia? What is philanthropy doing in Botswana? Or what is philanthropy doing in early childhood education anywhere in the world? So Seema?
Thank you, Brad, and good evening, everybody. It's uh, great to be here to share the findings of our report on US Foundation funding for Australia. And it's been really incredible and wonderful to partner with the US Studies Center um, and Philanthropy Australia on this first ever report looking at US Foundation funding for Australia. So the report um, consists of two parts. The first part is a quantitative analysis of um, uh, US grant dollars. And the second part is um, uh, looking at qualitative data that comes from interviews with uh, foundation leaders in the US as well as um, foundation uh, leaders here in Australia. So let me uh, start with the quantitative analysis. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of back background um, about our research set. Uh, our research set focuses on grants of 10,000 US dollars or more from 1,000 of the largest US foundations. So this research set um, essentially represents about half of uh, all grant dollars awarded by US foundations. And we looked at um, grants that were directed to organizations located here in Australia, as well as grants to organizations that were located in the US or other countries uh, that had programs that were targeting Australia. So using this data set, we took a in-depth look at funding between 2011 and 2013. So if you look at the far end of that chart, uh, the headline is that during this three-year period, uh, 71 US foundations awarded 393 grants totaling 95 uh, million US dollars to over 200 different recipient organizations. Um, this is uh, generally consistent with trends we see going back to 2005, although you'll notice that there's a spike in 2009, and that's because of three very large grants made by Atlantic Philanthropies. So the largest, um, you know, in terms of looking at issue areas, the largest bulk of grant dollars uh, in this three-year period went to health, and it consisted of 43% of, of grant dollars. Uh, grants for the environment and animals made up 12% of giving, while agricultural, agriculture, fishing, and forestry made up 11%. So uh, the health-related funding was large, largely driven by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which alone gave 29 million uh, for health. In fact, the single largest grant uh, in our sample was for nearly $5 million, and it was given by the Gates Foundation to uh, Policy Cures here in Sydney. And that grant was for research and development um, related to neglected diseases in the developing worlds, world, such as HIV, tuberculosis, and, and malaria. So in addition to looking at sort of the different issue areas that uh, grant dollars were awarded to, we also look at um, uh, grant descriptions to code uh, grants based on the population groups served. So there's a lot of information on this slide, but um, just to highlight uh, quickly, um, over half of all grant dollars for Australia were explicitly designated for economically disadvantaged groups. Um, we also found that uh, $1.3 million was explicitly designated for indigenous populations. Um, so that's uh, about 1.4% of um, grant dollars. And to give you an example of some of the work here, uh, Coca-Cola Foundation has distributed a number of grants to um, support mentoring uh, students of Aboriginal descent. Um, many times we find that grants 
do not actually specify a population group and that they're intended to, to serve the general public. And so this was the case for um, about a quarter of the grants uh, uh, coming here to Australia. So in terms of um, the recipient location and the geographic distribution of grants, most of the grant dollars by US foundations, so 86%, were given directly to organizations located here in Australia. 12% uh, were given to organizations located in the US, and these are, um, again, organizations that have programs uh, directed uh, for Australia. And then 2% uh, were awarded to organizations in, in other countries. So looking at the grant dollars going directly to organizations uh, located here in Australia, we found that organizations located in Victoria, New South Wales, and Queensland received roughly equivalent amounts of, of funding, so about $22 million each. Everyone's always interested in the top funders list, so not surprisingly, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, tops the list, uh, and they accounted for about 47% of grant dollars. Um, Atlantic Philanthropy is second on the list, and as many of you uh, may know, Atlantic has had a long-standing uh, presence here in Australia, and as a spend-down foundation, they closed their office here in Sydney in uh, 2012, but want to acknowledge that over the years, they've um, uh, invested over $385 million uh, two organizations in Australia largely focused on um, higher education and, and medical uh, research um, here. So I, I'll point out a couple of other things because everybody knows the Gates Foundation and Atlantic Philanthropies, but um, you may not be familiar with some of the other foundations in the top 10 list. So Gordon Moore, who is um, one of the co-founders of Intel uh, Corporation, um, uh, founded a, foundi uh, founded a, um, with his wife, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, which focus on, focuses on environmental issues. And so they've made a number of grants here in Australia focused on, um, on those causes. The May and Stanley Smith Charitable Trust, which is number 10 on our list, has made 29 grants um, in that three-year period. And um, the story there is that Stanley Smith uh, was born here in Australia and so devotes a chunk of their funding to, um, to organizations here. Um, in terms of the top 10 recipients, um, uh, the thing that's striking here is that a lot of these organizations are institutions of higher education, again, sort of reflecting um, the investments that the Gates Foundation has made in, in research um, here. So just really quickly, I want to acknowledge some other funding um, that's coming to Australia. So in addition to the 95 million that we documented um, by the top 1,000 foundations, we did a deeper dive into our database to get a sense of, of some of the additional uh, dollars coming to Australia. So we don't have complete data for 2014 and 2015 yet, but based on what's currently in our database, we've already documented $50.2 million in funding, and again, um, uh, a large portion of that is coming from the Gates Foundation, so 43.7 million of that, that 50 million uh, is from the Gates Foundation. Um, we also took a look at our database to see uh, to what extent public charities are giving in Australia. So um, U.S. public charities derive their funding primarily um, from the general 
public from fundraising efforts. And again, although our database isn't comprehensive in this regard, um, between 2011 and 2013, we found that public charities distributed at least 6.5 million um, to organizations in Australia. We also have some data in our database uh, from uh, foundations outside of the U.S., and um, we found 5.3 million uh, in grants for Australia from non-U.S. foundations, um, including 3.6 million from the Oak Foundation uh, based in Geneva. And then, of course, the question is, what about uh, foundation funding from uh, foundations here in Australia? So the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission um, produced a report showing that in 2014, grant-making in Australia amounted to um, 4.5 billion Australian dollars. So clearly, Australian foundations are distributing um, large amounts of funding. What's missing, and what we hope to inspire from this report, is micro-level information about these grants, showing which foundations are funding which organizations and for what purpose. So that's um, sort of a high-level overview of the quantitative analysis. Um, in addition to that, as I mentioned, we did a number of interviews with foundation leaders here in the US and Australia um, to find out about their motivations for funding and to ask them about specific challenges and, and opportunities uh, in Australia. So we found that US foundations awarding grants for Australia have a variety of reasons for doing so. Um, as I mentioned, some donors have personal connections. Um, to the country, such as having lived or worked here. here. Um, corporate foundations, not surprisingly, are likely to invest in areas where they have offices. Um, they may see a, a region as an emerging market or invest in issues that align with their own interests. And some donors, like uh, Give to Asia, solely target funding for the Pacific region, so they have um, sort of a regional focus. And then certainly other donors are interested in, in specific issue areas um, that draw them to institutions based in Australia. So the funders we interviewed described a broad spectrum of societal challenges and opportunities for philanthropic investments, um, particularly one of the things that came up was um, the vast disparity in outcomes experienced by rural communities and indigenous populations. So um, many of the funders we interviewed expressed um, uh, an interest in, in committing funds to that area. Other issues that uh, surfaced included income inequality, climate change, vocational and higher ed, um, opportunities for disadvantaged children and young people, refugee resettlement, marriage equality, very similar to the, the issues that we uh, find uh, in the US as well. So we also asked funders about um, their experiences with collaboration. And we found that collaboration between US and Australian foundations um, does not appear to be that common. Um, with respect to government, we found that foundations have varying degrees of interaction. Um, Foundation leaders may sit on government advisory boards. Some foundations may co-fund projects with the government, and other foundations have, have no interaction at all with, with government. Um, in terms of collaboration among Australian foundations, we found that that may occur in the context of co-funding a project or joint fundraising ex exercises. But it seems rare for foundations to sit around the table and come up with um, a shared agenda uh, a number of folks we talked to said that they see collaboration as essential, but acknowledge the challenges of, of doing it effectively. 
And then finally, we also asked um, interviewees about what it would take to achieve greater impact. And uh, the need for more information sharing was a recurring theme. So Linda Griffith from Give to Asia shared with us, we know there's a lot of philanthropy taking place and it's private. We need more information on what the needs are and what's being funded. And indeed, one of the um, observations that we make in the report is that we actually know more about funding flows of US foundations to Australia than we do about the giving of Australian foundations within Australia. So with that in mind, we wrap up the report with, with three thoughts on the road ahead, um, which can be summed up as more transparency, better communication, and stronger collaborations. And on this slide, um, what I have here is a screenshot of Foundation Maps, which is a data visualization tool that um, shows the more than four million grants that we have in Foundation Center's database. And basically, users can go into this tool and do a pretty deep dive into who's funding what, where. And so tools like this are an uh, important first step towards more transparency. And one of the questions that we hope this report raises is, what would it mean for Australian foundations to share information in a similar manner on their funding activities? Um, so this sort of transparency would certainly heed calls for accountability and data sharing in the sector, but it could also serve as a vital communications tool, um, one that allows the sector to demonstrate its contributions to society and to be better positioned to influence public conversations around the social issues that they care about and in which they have a lot of knowledge and, and expertise. And importantly, we also think better transparency and communication can lead to stronger collaborations. Um, ideally, funders will have the information they need to identify potential partners, minimize duplication of effort, and target their funding uh, in a way that addresses um, funding gaps in, in, the, in the sector. So again, we hope that this report represents an important first step in understanding philanthropic funding flows in Australia. And uh, we also hope that um, this is an important step in deepening the partnership between Foundation Center and organizations here, like the US Studies Center and Philanthropy Australia. Um, and ideally, we can continue to work together and engage other philanthropic stakeholders as we develop uh, new resources that can help advance our understanding of, of philanthropic activities in Australia. So I'll stop there. If you have um, any questions or want to follow up with us, feel free to get in touch with us at the Foundation Center. You can also follow our work on Facebook and Twitter. And um, with that, I'll turn it back over to, to Bates. Thank you very much. Um, so I want you Thank you very much, Seema, for uh, delivering that uh, um, headline view, I think, of what's available in the new report that's just issued. As I said, uh, there's more information available for you uh, on the table uh, as you uh, depart, uh, but you also will now have the opportunity over the next half hour or so to probe a little bit deeper on the issues that we discussed. I would like to ask um, our three speakers to come up to the front and also be joined by uh, Sarah, Sarah Davies and uh, Tess Boyd-Kane. We're just going to have a short sort of panel discussion, and then we'll open it up for, for, um, for discussion. Come on up, Seaman. I'll, I'll stand from here. Go ahead. And Brad as well. Go ahead. So um, I'll, I'll stand from here. Um, so we're being joined uh, on the panel uh, just now, in addition to our three speakers, uh, by Sarah Davies and Tess Kane Boyd, 
Tessa Kane Boyd. Sarah Davies is the Chief Executive Officer of Philanthropy Australia, a position she's had since October 2015. Prior to that, uh, you all may know she was the CEO of the REACH Foundation and is also CEO of the Australian Communities Foundation in, in prior iterations of her career. And of course, most proud to say, uh, our key partner here in Australia in bringing together uh, uh, the visit from our friends from the United States and today's report. Uh, we're also very, very happy to be joined by Tessa Boyd-Kane, uh, who was recently appointed as CEO of the National Center for Health Justice Partnerships. She was previously the Deputy CEO of the Australian Council of Social Services and was, interestingly, in 2013, a Fulbright Scholar uh, who went to the United States to research uh, the development and, and prospects of nonprofit organizations in that country and bringing back lessons, I hope, uh, for Australia, including a short stint with the Foundation Center by wonderful coincidence. So we've asked these folks to join us up here just to give a little bit, uh, little bit more detail, maybe a little bit more information on some of the things they've discussed today. I want to first start with, um, with Stephen and with Brad. It's this issue of transparency. Brad, you basically listed it as your number nine point uh, for the future, I'm sorry, Stephen, you mentioned that as the number nine uh, point on what needs to be done for philanthropy going, going forward. I'm just, and we heard a little bit more of it uh, just at the very end there in Seema's presentation about what sort of the underlying motivations are behind the presentation of this report. Could you just give us a minute or two additional thoughts, Stephen, as a leader of the grant-making uh, community in the United States? Um, what is the value then of being more transparent? You talked about legitimacy, you talked about independence, but could you give us a few more concrete examples of how that really, really brings value to what you're doing? Sure. Um, thank you very much. So I think transparency is important for those purposes, legitimacy and uh, safeguarding our independence, but it is also important to increase our impact. If we are transparent and other foundations are transparent, we will know where to search for partners. The grantee community will know which of us in the foundation community are interested in the kind of work they're doing. And it facilitates the, the relationships among foundations and between foundations and grantees. It, it really is a way of increasing efficiency and increasing impact. And I do want to say that I, that I can understand that for many it, it is uncomfortable. Um, you can imagine that even for members of the Rockefeller family, they're concerned about their privacy, they're concerned about security, kidnapping. I mean, you know, you can, you can imagine all kinds of reasons why uh, they may wish to be less transparent about what they're doing with their philanthropic funds or their philanthropic institutions, but they have come to see over the decades that in fact transparency enhances their ability to be successful philanthropists. And so they are now fully in supportive of the work we're doing to try to be as transparent as we can possibly be. Thanks, thanks Stephen. Now, um, Brad, I mean your organization is really all about uh, trying to promote transparency within the sector uh, and really taking a lead in this. Um, I wonder if you could just provide a few examples uh, of, of how this sort of approach to giving has actually achieved the kinds of synergies and uh, you know, breakthroughs, improvements, efficiencies that, that we want to believe are there. Yeah. 
Well, as I said when I made my brief remarks, um, one of the primary purposes of the information collected and published by the Foundation Center originally had been actually, and it continues till today, to help nonprofits sort of navigate the foundation world. And the foundation world is very large, it's very diverse, um, and it's really helpful to be able to go to a, a database and search through the entire universe of foundations in order to find one that might be aligned with your nonprofit's interest. Um, but uh, increasingly, this information um, has been repurposed by us to help, one of the ways I think of it is lower the transaction cost of collaboration for foundations themselves. Um, when foundations want to work on an issue many times, uh, they face two sort of primordial questions. One is, who else is funding the issue that we're interested in? And then the second is, how can we know and learn what others who have already worked on this issue know? So we don't have to start all over again. There is a lot of duplication in the field. And we've been developing a, a growing number of sort of web-based applications. I mean, everything is on the web today, right, or on your phone, um, that actually help answer those two questions for foundations. And Seema, my colleague, worked on one of the earlier versions of this, which was a public-facing website on what philanthropy is doing on something called WASH. WASH is water access, sanitation, and hygiene. 900 million people in the world do not have access to safe water. And this is an area in which a number of foundations work. But they came to us and said that, you know, we don't really understand what each other are doing, and we know there's many more foundations working on this. And could you develop something that would help us see all this information and improve our collaboration? And could you also show us what governments are spending on this so we can see where our funding fits in? So, we developed that. Another site we developed was on something called Black Male Achievement, which is addressing the problems faced by black men and boys in American society. Um, a small group of foundations work on this issue, and they wanted to grow the funding. So we developed a site which shows what all the funding is doing, the best research in the field, um, tagged news stories about new giving, case studies about what's effective, and a series of baseline research reports. And we can actually, three years into this, we can show that as a result of this work, that actually the amount of funding being provided for this, one of the most severe problems in American society, is growing. Thanks. Thanks very much, Brad. And there's really a lot of powerful arguments out there for uh, the need to increase um, transparency for a range of different reasons, many of which are really hard and practical. Uh, it's, it's precisely to try and improve the efficiencies of what we all want to see achieved. Um, we've been hearing a lot from uh, the Americans uh, and sort of what their uh, approach to these questions are and some of the interesting work that they're undertaking. I think it'd be really valuable to hear, our, and we have to hear, uh, Australian perspectives on this, and that's why we're really happy to have Sarah Davies and, uh, and, and Tessa Kane Boyd with us. Um, may I ask you, Sarah, please, to um, maybe just reflect a little bit on what you've heard uh, today from our American guests uh, and, and help our audience understand a little bit more about where we are you know, in the thinking of philanthropy Australia along this trajectory and, and what you'd like to try to achieve going forward. Well, you know that movie when Harry met Sally and they're in the restaurant and the woman at the next table goes, I'll have what she's having? I'll have what they're having. <laughs> <laughs> so 
you know, seriously, we have a real dearth of that kind of data in Australia. And it's not, it's not the data per se, it's the insight and the power you get from knowing things and understanding things and shapes and patterns that you can then deploy and use to create better outcomes. So this for us, um, you know, it's, it, the conversations have been going on for, for years in Australia around we need to know more about philanthropy, but sometimes you've just got to start. So this for us was just the first tangible thing that we could think of doing that was achievable and realistic and practical and helpful that would start to show people in a very pragmatic, tangible way how this kind of insight can lead to more and better philanthropy. And the purpose of that is more and better social outcomes. So philanthropy in itself is a means to an end. What we're after are the goals that we're chasing in terms of social, um, environmental, cultural change for the kind of world that we want to live in. And there are four things, I think, that, we're, that are really hurting us because we don't have this insight. The first one is, you know, philanthropy needs a social license to operate. We operate in a tax concession environment in Australia that is pretty generous. And so there are issues of accountability and transparency that I think we need to be leaders of and not wait for regulators to come and yell at us and tell us what to do. We should be working this out for ourselves and displaying those kind of behaviours in advance of public expectation of accountability and transparency. The second reason, as I said, is this insight in terms of where we're making decisions to make social investments and philanthropic grants. Without this kind of knowledge, we're kind of at risk of really shooting blind. And I just think that's, I think that's crazy. You know, philanthropy is still only eight cents in the social change dollar. So exactly, Steve, in the same situation. The quantum of philanthropy in Australia is pippy. So the leverage that we can put that eight cents to work is where the exciting change can happen. And without this kind of insight, I, I just think we're, you know, we're blindfolded. The third reason is, is collaboration. I mean, we've got a lot of co-funding, which is a bit like kind of parallel play between philanthropists. But really, in terms of getting stuck into some of these really gristly, hairy problems, that kind of co-research, co-thinking, co-design, and genuinely initiating something together to really crack some of these nuts is where we need that insight. And the fourth reason is, is actually, I think, out of respect for the grant seekers. So we have about 30,000 nonprofits in Australia that are item one deductible gift recipients, so organisations who are looking for philanthropic funding, about 30,000 of them who are economically significant. One of our colleagues is in the middle of a PhD at the moment, and he has calculated that in the way that grant seeking works in Australia, we have the equivalent of 33,000 full-time grant writers generating that eight cents in the philanthropic dollar that ends up in these non-profit organisations. Well, I just, that makes me want to weep, really. I mean, I just think out of respect for the organisations that are doing the work, we should just have clearer, more practical, more accessible gateways into who is and isn't open to funding, where the matches are and how we go about it. Sorry, I get a bit cross about that sort of We're stuff. We're happy you are. We're happy you are. And, um, Thanks very much, sir. So just, just lastly, before we turn open for some questions from uh, our uh, wonderful audience, um, I wanted to hear from um, uh, Tessa Kane um, Boyd. You, in a way, had a foot in both worlds. 
uh, having spent a little bit of time in the United States with your Fulbright and now leading a very important nonprofit organization. Um, what are your thoughts on what you've heard tonight and what we need to do going forward? One of the things I really like in the report is Brad's comment that there's a bit of a twilight notion amongst philanthropists that they can continue to do their work in private. And I think really there's an opportunity now um, that philanthropists and indeed that charities and non-profits can take. And the opportunity is to lead the processes around transparency and accountability. But I think we need to recognise that those processes are going to happen whether or not sector organisations, philanthropists, charities, non-profits are part of that conversation or not. And we see that in the way that increasing amounts of data are being released, are being shared, are being made available, and also in the way that innovations, particularly in the technological space, are creating a whole range of platforms that even a year ago we would never have thought of. So I think the real message for me um, in terms of the, the landscape that we're on and the kind of data that we can see in the report released today is that these processes are going to happen in Australia as they're happening everywhere and sector organisations can lead, can be part of that process and part of that discussion or they can be left behind. And a really good example of that for me and something that I saw both in the US work I did and that I've absolutely seen here in the Australian context is how charities and philanthropists respond to what Stephen talked about in terms of the political culture of partisanship. Many charities and philanthropists feel very threatened by that culture and particularly by the risk that in speaking out you'll attract the ire of what can be you know, incredibly personalised often and very nasty attacks on organisations and on individuals. And a lot of the charities that I spoke to in the US um, sort of reflected a reticence about speaking out because of the risk they saw that posed to their organisations. We've certainly seen similar behaviour by charities in the Australian context. But we need to remember that part of the value of civil society is its capacity to present an independent and a strong voice. And the trust and the confidence that charities and philanthropists engender from the communities that they work in and from the general public our trust and confidence in that capacity to provide a third strong independent voice. So I think there are ways that sector organisations can use transparency and accountability to tell that story about what they do and why that matters. And I think that's a really important tool in the armoury, in a sense, of civil society and particularly a leadership role that philanthropists certainly, but I would say the broader non-profit sector can play. So very interesting points. I mean, I think what we're hearing is that, uh, and we're learning all of us in, in different aspects of our lives, that uh, transparency is simply a fact. Uh, of course, we know that Google knows far more about us than we would probably prefer, and that's just even a, a small a drop in the bucket of, of where this world is going. Um, and either you work to make it work for you, or, or it's going to end up working against you, or at least there's a big risk that it will. Um, so this is all a very, very interesting uh, topic. Yes, it's on philanthropy, but it's on much larger issues about um, you know, how we prosecute social change. So I really thank all of you very much for these great insights. We have, a, we have about 10 or 15 minutes, uh, nowhere near enough time really to dig too deeply, but we're so pleased to see such a great turnout here this evening. I know many of you probably have a lot of questions or issues or points you'd like to raise, so I would just simply ask if you do uh, to make sure I can see you. and then go ahead and uh, identify yourself and feel free to direct your question to one of the speakers or to all. Any thoughts, anything, any points people would like to raise uh, uh, this evening? Yes, please. Hello, I'm Rosalind Strong from the Sydney Community Foundation and I just want to say how much I value the Foundation Centre. When I first visited it in New York, I thought your database was the best 
thing. And it's a thrill to see this conversation happening here at Sydney University because at that stage I think it wasn't online and, and I, in Queensland you could access the material but you couldn't in Sydney. And we started some conversations at that time with the University of Sydney about the possibility of the University of Sydney hosting it but they haven't gone anywhere so I'm so pleased this is happening. And uh, congratulations also to Philanthropy Australia for starting the conversation in the way you've done it. I think it's not a very subtle thing that you're doing, but I think it's an excellent outcome. Not one of the qualities I'm known for. No. <laughs> anyway, I, I really want to know what's the next step after this. I mean, you're going to throw this out into the pond of all of the good people who are philanthropists here in Australia. And uh, what do you hope to have happening next? Well, um, with this report, what we hope is that this will start to be a demonstration of the value of the insight and will start to build the appetite and the comfort level with Australian funders around, well, okay, that perhaps there are ways that we can participate. So our next step for this is really to try and build a bit of a, a census, um, to partner with the Foundation Centre in New York. They have a global taxonomy. We don't have to invent anything or create anything. It's already there. Um, to, to work with the ACNC and the ATO to access the data that they've already got and how can we actually bring that together. Now, I don't think we're going to go from now and day one have what the Foundation Centre in New York have, but even if we start to build voluntary participation and have a campaign that puts the early adopters in and the leaders in, then hopefully within a couple of cycles we'll have 80% you know, of the funding participating. So the, the goal is to actually build this here in partnership with the Foundation Centre and in partnership with the academic institutions here and with the ACNC. And as a second kind of tangible bite to tackling this, sorry, I'm bumping microphones, um, is the ACNC, when they release or do the analysis of their annual information statements, they will do a subsector report each year. So I think the first one was in disability services, is that right, this year? Well, next year, when philanthropic entities complete their annual information statement through the ACNC, they will have another dozen or half a dozen questions that, we all, that we've worked with with the ACNC and philanthropics here to try and collect to do a subsector report on philanthropy. And what we're hoping to do with that is not just put more data out there, but actually show people that we have a mechanism that people are already using to already report that if we can just enhance, we'll, we'll get to this point. So our goal is to get to the point where we have this data in partnership with the people who already have the assets and the IP and the knowledge to help us do it. All right, thank you very much. We sort of, I see this very much as, as sort of the beginning of a great conversation. and. Uh, and looking forward to um, working going forward with our partners, Philanthropy Australia and the Foundation Centre and, and others here in Australia to see if we can advance this uh, to the next level. Do we have another, uh, any questions or comments others would like to bring to the floor this evening? Yes, I see a gentleman in the back there. Hello, uh, my name's James Day. I'm from uh, CDP, or formerly known as the Carbon Disclosure Project. And uh, we're an international organisation that uh, motivates companies and cities all around the world to uh, disclose and uh, reduce their environmental impacts. Uh, we're fortunate to uh, get the support of philanthropists uh, in the US and, and all around the world. Um, I've noticed here in Australia that uh, 
uh, there's much more of a focus on charitable giving rather than the strategic philanthropy that, say, Stephen uh, mentioned in, in his talk tonight. And uh, I'd also like to thank Stephen for uh, the leadership that the Rockefeller Brothers Fund has shown uh, on climate change, particularly uh, in the last few years. Um, I was wanting to ask Stephen particularly, uh, what uh, can philanthropists do to drive more of a focus on uh, that strategic philanthropy uh, to move, uh, more, you know, I guess, you know, slightly away from charitable giving to take more of those riskier investments that are really needed in our society? Mm. Well, first of all, I want to thank you, too, for the work of the Carbon Disclosure Project, uh, which has been a very, very important part of educating the public, educating the business sector, and educating those of us in philanthropy. And, and you all have done terrific work for many, many years. I think that the, the, the kind of transition from more charitable forms of giving to more strategic forms of giving, or a shift in the blend of the two, is part of an ongoing conversation in, in the field of philanthropy, but in individual philanthropies themselves. And, and many people begin their charitable giving or organize their early philanthropic institutions around very personal interests. Um, they are concerned about kids with autism. They are worried about not having enough public parks in their city for populations at the margins. Um, the list can go on and on and on. And that's how they get started. That's how they get motivated. And that's very important um, because it draws on that personal commitment, that personal set of values, and a personal drive to do something positive. As they gain more experience and they begin to see that, in fact, that work is positive and constructive but may not be enough because it's like the old adage about giving somebody a fish or teaching them to fish, that ultimately, even as you're funding that work year in and year out, you're wondering, couldn't we do something to change the conditions that are causing these problems? And they begin to ask the questions, how could my charitable giving make a, a, a bit of a transition itself? And that's the kind of discussion that often leads to bringing more people onto foundation boards to expand the expertise around the board table, hiring some professional staff to help make these kinds of decisions and develop the strategies. It can be a little bit intimidating at first, frankly, um, but it's an iterative process. So the more we talk about it in forums such as this one, the more we write about it in reports, the more we help each other to think about strategy, the, the more I think we will see in the, in the framework of strategic giving. Even in the 15 years that I've been a foundation CEO in the US, we've seen more and more philanthropists and philanthropies moving on this path of trying to be more rigorous about setting strategy, having measurable goals, and assessing their impact. And, and it's, it's just a process that people need to go through, and we need to help them do it. Of other, um, I, I agree with you. We absolutely um, have seen that sort of 
you know, life cycle develop of a, of a philanthropist in a, in a generic sense. Two other things. I think talking about it's really important, and we don't do anywhere near enough about that in Australia. So just a popularity poll here. Hands up those of you in this room who regularly, with your family and friends, talk about your giving. Well, okay, so we're in a positively predetermined audience, and it's still only less than a third or a quarter. So I think it's important that we celebrate philanthropy and that we talk about it and that we build those role models. And the other piece that we're missing is the data, is the so what. So what does philanthropy contribute to our society? And we don't know that. So in order to create that excitement around how you can get involved and how you can participate in pursuing those goals, we don't have the evidence of what it's already doing to share that and to generate that excitement. Is there anything uh, from the data that tells us about this shift in the balance of strategic versus charitable? Do we see anything yet, in America at least? I mean, we've never really sliced the data exactly that way. Because, um, of course, it would require defining what we mean by strategic versus charitable. Yes, that, so. well, that's how most data, most data discussions start with what do we mean. Um, but, but what we do see is when we have the, the it's really interesting. We, we can talk about philanthropy or we can talk about issues. And if we go out, out of the building here and stop people and ask them about philanthropy, many of them won't respond. If we ask them about climate change, we ask them about indigenous populations, we ask them about lots of issues, they will respond. Uh, the more work that we have done on issues and how philanthropies, foundations, and donors are working to make progress on issues, the more we're able to see the role and the importance many times of smaller foundations and smaller gifts in a larger ecosystem of what it takes to solve a problem. For example, climate is a very interesting problem. I mean, you have, at the high end, you have foundations that are very strategic, like the one Stephen told us about. Um, that are working on a lot of the policy issues. But there's also a, a side of climate change is about adaptation, actually, about communities around the world that are actually living the impacts of climate change. And we see that many times it's smaller foundations that are providing grants directly to those communities to deal with how they adapt to climate change that are part of the overall equation. But until we pull all that information together, and look at the issue of climate change and how foundations of all different sizes have a role to play, we really can't see that. So mm. I think part of the question is, is how you look at it and what lens you look at it that allows you to see the full ecosystem of philanthropy. Because it is made up of large foundations and small foundations, those that think globally, those that think locally. But increasingly, we're beginning to have the tools to see how it fits together. And I think everyone would agree that uh, it's not a question of either or here, is it? No. It's a question of having the, the proper mix and diversity. Some are capable of delivering on that strategic prospect. Others may not be, but can still do great work. Um, we're already down to the end of our time, I'm afraid. I wanted to, uh, maybe we could take one more question. Uh, but I'd also then want to turn uh, to you, Sarah, just to give a, uh, any closing remarks you'd wish to and a vote of thanks. But let's take the last question. Uh, Jeff Mulheron from the Law and Justice Foundation of New South Wales. A question about does it works. It's very important, my foundation is very heavily into data, but um, 
It's one thing to know who gives how much to what and for what purpose. The next question is, does it work? Yeah. Uh, now, about 10 or 15 years ago in Philanthropy Australia, we tried to organise a evaluation uh, uh, focus group, if you like, and it, it didn't succeed. There wasn't a commitment, just as there perhaps isn't to data, there wasn't a commitment to actually a strong evidence-based approach to assessing whether things worked. I mean, I think, Stephen, it was one of your seventh point, I think, about uh, actually attribution and causality and so forth. So I guess my question, I, and I don't know about your, the, the Foundation Centre, do you have much information in your databases about what actually works with all, not just going beyond what's been given, but actually what works? Um, yes, actually. And you know, the, the, the two questions, I, going back to that we're trying to answer is who's funding what where, and how can I know what other foundations and their partners have already learned about my issue? So we do have a, a site actually called issuelab.org which is an online open archive of over 20,000 pieces of research, evaluations, best practice documents published by foundations um, or by their partners and is fully searchable by issue. So you could go on there and look, for example, on um, end-of-life care, what some people call palliative care, and you could see uh, research and evaluations and lessons learned and best practices published by our field in terms of what we know about what works and what doesn't work uh, in working in palliative care. And we've had a fascinating example of this. And, and I think you know, those of you who run foundations, um, it would be interesting to ask the same question that Atlantic Philanthropies has been asking itself. Atlantic Philanthropies is spending out all its resources by the end of 2016. And they've realized that you know, once we're gone, how will people know what we learned about our issues? And I think it's a really crucial question for almost any foundation to ask themselves. And one of their issues was, or has been, palliative care. So they, they came to us and we worked with them to make available to the entire field not only what they've learned about working on palliative care, but what the rest of the field knows. So when a new foundation was started in San Francisco called the Stupsky Foundation, which wants to work on this issue, they don't have to start from nothing. They can go to this resource and see what the field has already learned about working on palliative care. So do we have it for every single grant made by every single foundation? No, and we probably don't need it. But there is a way to begin to collect this information and share it, which really helps to answer this question, how can I know what others already know? And I think, I mean, one of the issues about impact and effectiveness is, um, you know, first of all, there are still organisations in the US that are struggling with how do they assess that. There's certainly a real challenge around that in Australia. So starting with everyone needs to assess that is really critical. But the other part of the impact and effectiveness question is it's a bit the self-interest that might motivate people who, and organisations who otherwise aren't interested in transparency and accountability. If it's a way of knowing what they're doing is working or indeed testing where else they might divert their resources. So the way we build that culture of transparency and accountability within <coughs> through that impact and effectiveness question, which I think is really important. Well, thank you very, very much. Um, we have come to the end of our designated time. I want to make sure everyone is able to depart on a relatively timely basis. But first, um, I wanted to uh, thank 
uh, our partner at Philanthropy Australia, especially Sarah Davies, CEO, and ask her to make some closing remarks and a vote of thanks. Thank you. Well, I was going to start by thanking you. So this conversation started in uh, September in a coffee shop in Sydney when I first met Bates, and we talked about this, and a few short months afterwards, we've delivered. So I hope that that is a case study of how our future collaborations will continue to work, pretty speedy, sharp, and focused, uh, with great value. So thank you, and thanks to the US Study Centre and the University of Sydney. Great partners, and we'll do it again soon. Brad and Stephen, I've never met them before today. I think I'm a little bit in love. Um, well, a lot in love. Just thank you. The wisdom, the generosity, um, the energy, the inspiration. I mean, we all need a shot in the arm every now and again to keep going. You guys, I reckon you fueled me for the next 10 years. So just phenomenal. Thank you so much. Seema, beautiful report. Great data. Loved your last line. We now know more about what US philanthropics are doing here than we know about ourselves. That's the point that we're trying to change. So thanks for leading that charge for us. I want to thank Christian Siebert, who is Philanthropy Australia's uh, policy and research manager, who's basically done the heavy lifting on this project. And uh, it's our shared goal with our colleagues that actually collaboratively we'll get there. So thank you all very much for coming. Thank you for your interest in this. Please talk about it. Please use the report. Please share it. Please analyze it. Please talk some more. So thank you very much. Thank you.